Hope y'all had a good extended weekend. And mine was good. Extended weekends always throw off my week. Not that it was normal anyway, because last week was the first week. So, yeah, I was kind of curious whether I would think that today was Monday and then skip all my Tuesday classes. But uh, a lot to cover today. Um, hopefully we can actually get into the text a little bit. That would be good. And then um, and some comments on some other areas too. Well, let's begin with a word of prayer and then I have some announcements to make. And then we'll talk about background, which is actually quite important. And hopefully then have the proper setup mindset to get into the book of 2 Samuel proper. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the Old Testament and um, the lessons that we learn in 2 Samuel, the theological grid that is generated from this book. Help us to remain faithful to you under any circumstance. Grant us convictions by your word that we may live and un- unwavering and without compromise in a a world that pressures us to, to break and to be disloyal to you. May our hearts be captivated with great love for the one who ultimately wields the Davidic covenant and fulfills the promises therein, the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, may our hearts just deeply love him and to understand his glory more through what we study here through the life of David. Grant us the ability to see the big picture. Grant us the awe that is rightly due for your plan as we now rediscover it in this class today. Grant us encouragement with one another as we fellowship over your word. We depend on your Holy Spirit for this time. In your name we pray. Amen. A couple of things on your SPPs. I'm grading them. I should have them all graded by today, Lord willing. Uh, and they're good. I mean, I don't really have a problem with them. Most of you all followed instructions. That That's good. Uh, let, me, let me make, though, some comments about them. First, when you make an assertion, give me at least a detail that proves that I know that you know what you're talking about, right? So if you say, hey, I think the book really has theme, whatever, and that might be true, you need to give me some kind of detail of the text, some kind of passage, event, story, whatever it may be, that verifies what you say. Now, you can't just say, well, it sounds good to me because, well, it just does. <clears throat> you need to back up what you say with something in the text. Learn how to do that. Uh, the, the problem that I would say we as evangelicals, and particularly those of us at Master's College, have is that we can really talk theology quite well. We can articulate Christian jargon well. But we don't actually know why we're saying what we're saying. And if I really came hard on you and said, hey, what do you really mean by this? You might not be able to give me an answer. Uh, Christianity, and it's exploded partly because of the blogosphere. And hey, I love reading blogs. That's and they're a good source of sometimes cutting-edge information. 
but they're information that's not tested and sometimes information that is not substantiated. Uh, and so we get ourselves into all kinds of headaches. Do I believe we should be gospel-centered people? Yeah, but do you really understand what that means? Like if I asked you, what is the gospel? And why does it have to be so central? Like, What do you mean by that? And how does that solve somebody who's in pain? Just be more gospel-centered. I think it does solve pain, don't get me wrong. And I think it's a good slogan to have, but you better understand what you're talking about when you say that. Don't just say it because that's the thing to say. <clears throat> you need to understand, and even more fundamentally, you need to really prove to me that's how the Bible has constructed the connection. Does that make sense? Don't just say, oh, well, we've got to be more gospel-centered because, well, the gospel central. Prove it to me, right? I'm a believer. I'm clueless. Show me from the Bible. Where does, this, where does Paul say the gospel is central? Show me, text verse. And you say, do they exist? I think so. I think there are some passages which kind of talk about something and along those lines maybe or, you know, we could go somewhere around there. But And it's, like I said, I'm not against the slogan, but I am against just saying pithy sayings for the sake of saying pithy sayings. Because three years from now, it'll be different. Right, they, they, I mean, this. I'm young, and I already have at least like 20 slogans under my belt that I, I could give to you. You know, uh, some of them are good, better than others, but they're all decent. They just have no verification. You need to give me reasons why you say and conclude something, even if it's just one sentence. It's okay. So you'll see me say, "Hey, detail, substantiate," something like that, in your comments on your papers. Um, the next thing I would mention is, what do we mean by theme? This is really interesting uh, because, and it's an understandable problem because when we think of a theme in a book, we think of what we've been taught in English class, which is a topic that is developed or that is uh, included within the content of a text that you read. Theme a theological theme or the theological theme of a book in Abner's world and probably should be in your world too <coughs> can include that but there is one to rule them all. Okay, There really is. And it needs to be two things. And I talk about this in OT survey. It must be comprehensive and it must be unique. It must be comprehensive in that it encompasses the entire message of the entire book, such that any part of the book, paragraph, sentence, phrase, can link all the way back ultimately to that theme. It must be comprehensive. Second, it must be unique. In other words, no two books can have the same theme. If they do, it's not unique. And you say, why does it have to be unique? Because... The Bible does not ever repeat itself. It may have similar truths involved, I will grant that, but the story of David is not the same story as the story of Genesis. Is that pretty easy to see? And, this, and even Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are all about the same event, historically speaking, they all have different wording. They all have omissions, additions, modifications. 
even in the same storyline. And that's not to say that they're in contradiction. That is to say, though, uh, they each have their unique perspective, which means they're all unique. They're all different. Because each book of the Bible is inherently different, covering different events, and even when they cover the same event, it's still different. Then each theme must reflect those differences. It must be unique. So if you say 2 Samuel is about God's sovereignty, and I say, oh, so what's Genesis? And you're like, well, that's God's sovereignty. Then it's not a unique theological theme. Otherwise, we just needed Genesis. Or we just needed 2 Samuel. We didn't need both. Does this make sense to everybody? It must be unique. And the reason that this is important for you all to know is that how many unique themes, hypothetically, do you need? 66. Why? Because there's 66 books of the Bible in the English Bible. And if you want, you know, you could combine First and Second Samuel, First and Kings, and get like 64 or something like that. But in any case, if you're really going to understand how the Bible fits together, then you need to understand how each book makes a unique, a distinctive contribution to the whole. Does this make sense to everybody? Just like a body, your human body, and Paul makes an allusion to this metaphor for a variety of reasons, has a bunch of unique parts, right? Not everything is a finger or an eyeball or a nose or a mouth or a foot. Because there is a unique contribution everything has to make. In the same way, so the Bible also works. If you, I, I don't know if any of you guys are classical music people, but at least you're aware that an orchestra isn't all one and the same instrument. Right? Even chapel, which people may criticize, I don't, but which people may criticize as a contemporary and blah, 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 blah. They at least have two instruments, if not more, yes? Why? Because person standing with guitar alone up there is not as good. Everyone understands. The variety makes a good, you know, guitar and a monotone singer, right? That would be the worst. It's like, <laughs> you gave me hope, you know, <laughs> you took my place. You know, we're like, no, that's terrible. At least variate, you know, sing off pitch. You can't. There's only one pitch for that guy. So the, <laughs> you need the differences. Otherwise, you don't understand, you won't hear the full chorus in the same way the Bible each book is a different singer or a different instrument. And it's meant to come together to produce a beautiful song, a beautiful picture. And you've got to identify the uniqueness and the unique contribution of each book. If you don't do that, I mean, you should do that here while you're at Master's College so that you have it for the rest of your life, so that you know then how to go about studying each individual book. And on the bright side, you only have to do it 66 times. Right? 66. I mean, how hard can that be? If you do one a day, okay, one a week, it's like a little over, I mean, okay, maybe one a day might be a little too much. One a week, you know, one a week, uh, you, it's a little over a year. You do... Uh, one, one a month, that, that would take you a little bit longer. Uh, that would be approximately six years. Well, that's still not bad, right? If you're a super senior, you get it done still while you're at master's college. Two a month, which is more reasonable, you can get it done while you're at master's. Three years. 
it's not hard, but it's worth the effort so that you understand how the Bible fits together. You can't understand how it fits unless you understand the nuances of every book. Okay? So please, and I'm not criticizing you because you didn't know exactly what I'm looking for in the paper, and I just want to see where you're coming from. Theological themes and books are good. They are. Topics, God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, sin, redemption, all these kinds of things. They're good, and we should notice them in the book of 2 Samuel. But don't ignore the forest for the trees. Right? Don't do, don't do this, okay? What is this? Pretend this is all filled in with black. What is this? It's a circle. It's a black circle. That's what it is. And you could say, Whoa, I see the theme of blackness. It's real dark, real heinous. And the circle of unity and uh, beauty and symmetry. And, you know, oh, yeah, wonderful. And it, look, it's about the size of Abner's hand, showing perfect matching fit, you know, all this stuff. And then you zoom out and you realize. It's Mickey Mouse's left ear. Okay? And all the time you're talking about unity and beauty and blackness and you're missing the whole point. It's about Mickey. Okay? This is, this is, the, this is the identifier of Disney. You know? And yes, it's definitely black and it's definitely circular and it definitely fits the ball in my hand. But it's definitely supposed to be cute. That's the idea. <laughs> Don't miss the major theme. Okay. Yeah, all of those things are true. Was it, was it a black circle? Yes, it was true. Was it a circle? Yes, it was supposed to be. Was it supposed to be the size of Abner's hand so that it could fit real well? Yeah, I kind of like that. Were well, all of those intentional? Yeah, but they all fit together to do something totally different than what you originally anticipated. So, don't miss the major theme of a book. Otherwise, you will think about black circles instead of Mickey Mouse. Okay. Just to put it like that. Finally, this is just a technical note, <clears throat> to, not, not necessarily to help me out, but to help you out uh, so you can get a grade on your paper. Make sure you save your papers in Word doc form, like that's a doc or docx. Some of you saved it in, you know, I don't have a problem with you using Mac. Some of you use pages because it comes with your Mac and you saved it in pages format. That's fine on my computer because I try to make sure that everything can import. But when I send it to the TAs for them to record, their computers don't op open pages files. So this is what they do. They're like, oh, it must not work. It must be a faulty file. OK, I'll just skip it and give you a zero. And then you come later and say, hey, why do I have a bunch of zeros for all these assignments? And I said, oh, oh, great. You know, like, did you, do you use an apple? Do you realize what happened in the garden? No, I'm just OK. The, uh, you know, uh, don't do that, you know. So please, in pages, you can save in a Word document form. You know that, right? So just do that, okay? Take the extra step. Not for my sake. I'll open it. I'll still grade it. And you'll get it back, and you'll have a grade on it, and you'll be happy. The TA in the middle will say, oh, I can't open it. I don't know what your grade is. So too bad. Yeah, and they're not, and the TA is not being spiteful. The TA literally thinks that your file, you know how sometimes files get messed up or something? They just think your file is messed up. They don't know the difference because it doesn't say, this is pages, 
your, your, you know, Microsoft doesn't want to say, and it can't open because it's on a Macintosh, you know, or an Apple or something. Please buy one of those. You know, they're not, they're not going to say that to you. So, please save it in document, Word document form. If you want, if you're concerned whether I'll get it or not, put it in PDF form, right? I can mark on PDFs just as easily, and I don't care. So if you want, and you're nervous about that, you don't know if you saved it right, put it in PDF, send it to me. Every, the secretaries can't open up PDF documents and they can see the grade on there. Does that make sense to everybody? Please do that. Not for my sake, for yours, so you get a grade. Okay? Otherwise, that would be a bummer. You do all this work and then you fail. And then, you know, it takes a lot of work to correct that. Any questions for me? Good. I think we're in background, yes? yes. Good. So turn there. And let's get into how 2 Samuel uniquely fits into God's redemptive plan. Okay, how 2 Samuel fits into God's redemptive plan. Really, if we're to start, we would need to start with the background. We need to go back to the book of Job. Job. Job is technically the first book <coughs> Ever written in the Bible. It was written during the time of Abraham. Or, okay, technically I guess Isaac Jacob. So, but in the patriarchal period. So Job is actually the first book. And Job really sets the trajectory for 2 Samuel in that it introduces us to some important questions and important ideas and important desires that Job has that will echo throughout the rest of Scripture. Particularly, Job introduces us to the desire, the need for man to have a mediator. Mediator. Uh, this is under Job. Here we are. Job has asked the Lord in a variety of passages, for example, the end of chapter 4, for an individual to arise that could allow Job to have his sins forgiven. You know, it's like, Lord, if only you would just overlook, you would just pass over my sin. If you could just do that some way or another. And you just say, okay, well, you need somebody to get that done. And that's at the end of Job 4. That's in 4 verse 20, if I remember correctly. And then later on in, or excuse me, not 4, 7. 7, 7, 7, 7, 7. Why, am I, why did I say 4? I don't even know why I said four. I think it's because I was thinking eight and I divided by two. But it doesn't. There, there's a re that was actually to solve a different question from, from minor prophets. I am in a different planet. Okay, chapter seven, twenty twenty one. I don't know what I was doing. My my apologies. Chapter eight. At the end. Of or in the eh, yeah at the end of chapter eight, you also have another illusion where Job wishes for somebody to arise whereby that Job says he could put his hand on me and he could put his hand on God. He's an umpire. What does that mean? If you can put your hand on God, what does that mean? You better be divine. Yes? Otherwise, if you put your hand on God and you're not divine, you're dead. It's like, hey, buddy, no, you don't do that to God. Uh, and, you put your, and he puts his hand on you, which means he's also what? Human. Human. So both and, yes? 
I want to, I need a mediator who actually can stand between me and God, and he, <coughs> um, you know, what, what's a mediator for? You go to the doctor's office, and he says to you, you know, you need to take this, and you look at it, and it looks disgusting. It looks like it'll kill you. It's purple, it's bubbling, and it smells like death itself. And you say, I'm not taking that. And he goes, you don't take this in 10 minutes? You will die in my office, and I will bury you. <laughs> and you're like, you want to gamble? It's like, I already have your insurance money, so it's up to you now, you know. And you're looking at that. What you need at that time is what? Somebody who empathizes with you, with your situation, right? You don't need another doctor who's in on the conspiracy who comes in and says, second opinion, absolutely, drink that. You only have nine minutes now. Uh, you, need a, you need somebody who is a doctor, a real doctor, who knows what he's talking about. And you also need somebody who's like you, right? Who's not corrupt. Now, I'm not saying doctors are corrupt. Don't get me wrong. I'm, in, this, in this fictional world, they are. And who's not in on the insurance schemes or anything like that. And he just says, you know what? They're totally bluffing you. First of all, that's just Kool-Aid. That went totally wrong <laughs> in the lab. And second of all, they don't know what they're talking about. You don't have to take it. You need somebody who empathizes with both sides, right? Whom you can trust. This is the nature of a mediator. Someone, as Job recognizes, and Job doesn't have a clue that this guy actually exists. Does everyone understand that? He's just, he's just wishing. This is Job's wish list. I need a mediator who can deal with sin. Deal with sin. Let's make that clear. Who's divine and human. And I need a mediator, as Job later mentions in chapter 14, who can overcome death and make unclean things clean. I don't know how to abbreviate that. But he can overcome death and make the unclean, you see, into clean. That's what Job is hoping for. God, give me somebody like that. Because I don't think he exists. And the irony is that, of course, he does. Right? He existed this whole time. But Job doesn't know that. And so... This is beautiful because what Job doesn't know sets up for this need in the story of redemption that will be fulfilled. And there's a lot more to be said. I mean, you know, 19, I know my Redeemer lives, remember that? And that actually probably is Job's confidence that God himself will do something about this. God himself can pay the price. Once again, divine human redemption is possible. He just doesn't know that everything he wants along with that, like overcoming death, making unclean clean, dealing with sin, all of that is going to come true as well. Are you with me on this? Job only knows a fraction. He doesn't know the whole story. Well, all of that and all of Job's questions really here, and particularly the ones that we're listing here, launch us into a discussion of Genesis, of the Pentateuch. Because this mediator, who can stand for man and all these kinds of things, he's introduced. But you don't make a connection between the two yet. I'm just telling you 
because I, I have the answer key, that there is a connection between three, Genesis 3.15 and the fall of man and Job's mediator. You don't know that yet. You, you don't have a clue about that yet. In fact, there is no evidence for a connection until a little bit later. But I'll just tell you, once you understand, you understand that they are connected, if not directly, here. Genesis 3.15, Messianic prophecy, and you can already start to see some connections, but they're really faint. Job's dealing with a sinful situation here. He, he is in the midst of sin. He needs somebody to make it right. That's basic enough. Genesis 3.15, Adam eats the fruit, and the fall happens, and God says, I have to send somebody to what? Make it right. To crush the serpent's head. This seed, <coughs> by the way, um, is the seed of who? Is he Jewish? No. Right? Because is Adam Jewish? It's not a trick question. No, he's not. <laughs> Adam is a man. He doesn't have any race. That's why we have mankind, right? We don't have Jewish kind as a, as a symbol of, of, of humanity, or we don't have Gentile kind. We have mankind. Why? Adam, Adam means man. Does that make sense to everybody? There is no race at this point of time. The person, one from your seed in Genesis 3.15, is the idea will be He's the second Adam, already implied. He's the, he's the next man. Does that make sense? Do you understand also where Paul gets second Adam from and all that kind of stuff? Because in Genesis 3, Adam, you failed. But there will be another Adam, another seed, key word here, seed of Adam to take your place to redeem what you have fallen. By the way, here's what's going to be more interesting and kind of teasing things out. You're in sin. You need a mediator in Job. Genesis. Who is this Adam? We need to really flesh this out a lot more. Why did God make Adam in his own image? Anyone remember? According to the text, Genesis 1, 26-28. Why? In order that he might... What? Rule. Good. Which, what, well, who, who rules? Don't say like a dorm name. Say position. Who rules? A king. Right? A ruler rules. A king rules. Adam, in Genesis, is already seen as at least a regent king. He's a regent king. And what does he rule over specifically? The where is he? In Africa? Garden, yeah. He's in the Garden of Eden. The paradise. The Garden of Eden, therefore, is a form of his what? Palace. Castle. Not castle. Palace. Does that make sense to everybody? That's why it's like, <clears throat> do you know that Adam lives in the... I don't think until I was a... Until I was in college, that I realized that the Garden of Eden is not the entire planet. You know that, right? Okay, good. I didn't. So if you didn't, that's okay. But it's not. It's just one part of the planet Earth. Right? It's not the whole planet. It's just one part of the planet. Why? Because it's the capital. It's Adam's throne room. 
and thereby God's throne room. Does that make sense to everybody? And when, he's, when he falls, what does he get kicked out of? The garden. And what we usually focus on here is, oh man, he lost the garden. It's like no more cool trees, no more... No, there's cool trees everywhere. Okay, it's not just in the garden. It's every, I mean, he just walks out. There's still cool trees. And we, we focus on, oh, he can't have the access to the fruit of life, so he's going to die. Well, yes, that is true, and that's a big upset. But what's the main purpose? He gets kicked out of the garden. Why? Because he's no longer king. Do you see that? Do you understand that? Satan now rules. <clears throat> because Adam in the garden, by eating that fruit, actually listened to ultimately the vice of not his wife Eve, who's not even named Eve yet. He listened to who? A creature named the serpent who was Satan. And he submitted to Satan's for lack of a better term, advice, instead of listening to who? God is king. So, this is all under Genesis. Well, actually, this is all under Genesis 3.15. So let's zoom up. See, the original authority structure is, why is the human king a king? Because he's made in the capital K-I-N-G's image. Does this make sense? God is the ultimate king. Creation is a testimony to the fact that God is the ultimate sovereign over the universe. He makes man in his image to bear out the fact that God is king, so man is the regent king. But what happened was, regent king gets this really funny idea to to subserviate himself to creation, specifically to Satan. And this is where the entire image of God becomes absolutely distorted. So what's the first thing that they notice when they eat the fruit? They are naked. See that? Instantly, image of God completely distorted. Completely perverted. They lost it. It becomes inherently twisted the way they start to see things. And from then on, nakedness is shameful. Because now, they lost the ability to perfectly bear God's image, they've now perverted in their own eyes because they've now aligned themselves with a different king named Satan. Does this make sense to everybody? Yeah. No, they didn't. They perverted it. Yeah, they perverted it. Right? It's kind of like... Uh, I'll give you a great example. Okay? Um... Kim, you're not allergic to chocolate, right? That was a different Ibex student. Yeah. But let's say I made an awesome chocolate cake. That's impossible, but let's say it happened. And it was so good that every, uh, like, every chef and baker in the world worshipped me because I made such an awesome chocolate cake. I mean, it was just so delicious, right? So I said it before you, and you're like, this is an awesome chocolate cake. And then you eat it, and you die. You're like, whoa, what? everything is about death today. Yeah, it is. Always is. Um, and you say, why? What's wrong with the chocolate cake? Nothing. It was so good, it should have given you life. But you ate it, and you just happened at that split second to become allergic to chocolate. And you die. What happened here was, there was an instant change in the soul of man, where good things became what? perverted. 
and what actually gave life now will produce death. And you can see that recurring throughout the entire book of, uh, at the end of Genesis, right? The woman whose joy should have been in what? Childbearing. Now it becomes what? Painful. Not just in the labor, that's one thing. But the idea in the Hebrew is conception and birth, the whole process of pregnancy, labor, birth, child rearing. And where do you see that? Instantaneously in Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. Do you think Eve was a happy mom? Okay, Abel's a nice guy, but then he dies. It's like, oh great, first murder. I didn't even, do you realize Eve really never experienced the loss, loss of human life until Abel? That, it wasn't just a shock because she lost her child. That was the first time she's ever experienced human death. That's the first time human death has ever been experienced in all history. This is, I mean, that's a shock beyond shock. Uh, She finds out the hard way. Yeah, sin has massive effects. What should have given her joy, having kids and raising them and seeing them grow up, turns out to be a nightmare. Everyone with me? And what man was supposed to do, which was till the garden, remember that, and all that kind of good stuff, uh, he learns the hard way now. What what is he going to fight? Weeds, thistles, and thorns. Everyone remember that? This is a nightmare. Why? Because the image of God now has been perverted. What should have given life and glory and goodness now provides death. Everything's been changed. Everything's changed. Okay? Because Adam has abdicated the throne and he's kicked off the throne. But there is this promise of another Adam. Another one to come from the line of Adam. One of his seed who inherently is a mediator, and I'll show you how. Someone turn to Genesis 3.15. And let's diagram this out. Someone read it out loud. Really loud. Because there's that like lawnmower thing going. So read it really loud. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offering and her offspring. Her, your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You will what? Bruise his head and he will your or whoops heel, sorry. That would change prophecy. <laughs> okay. Now, a lot of things here. U stands for who? Satan. Satan. Let's get that straight. Don't don't be like U as in God. That doesn't make any sense in this case. You, Satan, and the woman. Your offspring, Satan's offspring, yes? Versus her offspring, which would be what? Yeah, more than one person. Does that make sense? This is talking about an ongoing line of individuals, even though the, the noun is singular. Okay? But here's something interesting. You, who's you? Satan, this is not your question, will bruise his head. What's weird about that? It's also what? 
singular. But if we're following the parallelism, it's you versus woman, offspring versus offspring. Does that make sense to everybody? Plural versus plural. So it's either it should be you will bruise her heel, you versus woman. Does that make sense? Or it should be you will bruise their heel. Does that make sense to everybody? It should be plural. I mean, well, what's up with the Hebrew here? Well, there's nothing wrong with the Hebrew. It's what? There will be one that arises from the offspring, from the woman, the seed of the woman. That's how we get it. And that one will be the match for what? The source of the other line, which is Satan. Does this make sense to everybody? Are you with me on this? He stands in place of, or in the fulfillment, or in the culmination of, the other line. Do you see how this parallelism works? Does this make sense to everybody? That's why you will bruise his heel, he will bruise your head. You bruise somebody's heel, and then they bruise your head. There's a little different damage report there. You know, it's like the joke that the nerd always tells, like, I broke the bully's fist with my nose. You know, it's like, okay, that's good. <laughs> if you didn't get it, just think about it for a little bit and you'll, you'll figure it out. Yep, yeah, no problems. It's good for you to get this. The original parallelism is Satan versus woman, right? And Satan's offspring versus woman's offspring. So you would expect when the battle comes to fruition, it would be what? Satan versus you. If it's you, then it's got to be woman here. But it ain't woman. It's a man. Oh, okay. Well, maybe it's his offspring. But then it should be offspring. So what happens? You, as the source of this line, will battle him, the one who ultimately culminates the line. Champion versus champion, so to speak. And what that all means then is, uh, what that lends itself to is, that this seed, ultimate seed, is the one who represents the entire line behind him. Yeah, all of her offspring represented by one guy. A great illustration of this, and I say illustration of this idea, why did David fight Goliath? Anyone know? Just for fun? Like, whew, why not? He's big, I'm small, I got a slingshot, he's dead. No, why, why, why does Goliath do it in the first place? Because whoever wins that, hand, that individual combat, what does that mean? The nations, exactly. The nations behind them will also win or lose. Does that make sense to everybody? We're going to see that in 2 Samuel, actually, when there's 12 guys and they all kill each other. Remember that? They kind of thrust the knife. What, what, what was the point of that? Just for fun? No. It was the last man standing, his nation wins. Those 12 people are David and Goliath, are stand-ins, are representatives for the rest of their nations. This is combat. And here, God has already predicted, has already foretold that there will be one man who stands in place of all the other men and women of that line to fight Satan and to crush him. Does this make sense to everybody? Do you start to see themes jump out from this? And I mean themes in the English sense, not in the theological sense that I already talked about, of like substitutionary atonement, 
kind of ideas come out from this? Because why could Jesus be the substitute? Because that's his job description. Duh. I mean, that's how it works. And, by the way, do you also see how, why Paul talks about Adam and Jesus? We all fell in Adam, but we are all what? Redeemed and saved and glorified through Jesus. Does this all start to make sense? And, and why Paul, in Galatians chapter 3, says, uh, you remember him saying, and, he's, and God did not speak of seeds as of many, but seed as of one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone remember that? Well, why? Well, because he's going back here. He's not doing anything. Paul's not crazy. He's, he's, he's very good. You know? He understood Hebrew parallelism really well. I mean, probably better than I do. So then, because he was inspired. So the thing is, this all makes sense. And it already starts to give us this job description. The seed of the woman is a king, and the seed is supposed to be also a what? Mediator. He inherently will stand in for people like Job to make things right. Does this make sense to everybody? So that's Genesis 3. But that doesn't stop there. Because this, because what happens in Genesis is that there is a curse, <clears throat> particularly upon the earth. By the way, um, in Genesis 3, man and woman are not cursed. I don't know if you ever thought that, but they're not, okay? Just for the record, they're not. They can't be. If they were, it's all over. You know, <laughs> we wouldn't be here. We would be in hell. We would be destroyed. The only two entities that are cursed, yeah. The, so you're creating uh, with the king. The king served the purpose of a mediator. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. And so, how would um, Genesis three fifteen show us that this person was serving as king and mediator? Yes. Well, in context, Genesis three fifteen, Adam is the king. He reflects. That's why he's ruling, right? In or, that's why he's made in the image of God to rule over man and rule over the earth. Here's how he specifically, or specifically the seed, the Messiah, is going to function as a mediator because he, in parallelism, is substituted for offspring and woman. Whereas you, well, you and you, that all fits. But the reason he stands in place of them is because he, he acts on their behalf. He is their fulfillment. Does that make sense? And that's inherently what a mediator is, isn't it? Yeah. Somebody who stands in the place of another. Does this all make sense to everybody? Please ask questions. Please ask questions. This is, this is not a problem. And you can already start to say, well, this is getting complicated. Yeah, of course it's getting complicated. That's the nat- That's why, see this, okay, anyway. So there's curse here. Okay, curse. And in fact, in Genesis 1 through 11, it's just all curse. It's, it's a bunch of cursing. It really is. I mean, everything gets bad and bad and bad. And that's why the earth is flooded as a symbol of divine curse against the world. And when's the first mention of blessing? Real blessing. Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12. And in promises alike, Genesis 12, like Genesis 22, which echoes it, the curse now will become a blessing. How do, you, how, do you, how do you get from curse to blessing? You need the seed to come in to make everything right. Does this make sense to everybody? Are you with me on this? 
That's the only way, which is what Job wanted to happen anyway. So this starts to build. Genesis 22 says, your seed, Abraham, your seed, in, in your seed all the nations will be blessed. What's the key word there besides blessing? Seed. See the connection? Here, a seed in Genesis 3.15 who is a king by implication, who is a mediator by implication, he is going to end evil. He's going to crush the one who instigated evil in the world, Satan. Genesis 12 and 22, that's the transition between curse and blessing. How? Because all the nations will be blessed, what? In your seed. Once again, seed stands in for who? All the nations, which makes the seed person a what? Mediator. Do you see that? Do you see this connection? Good. On top of that, God says explicitly in Genesis 17 to Abraham, kings will come from you. That's the most important thing you need to know, Abraham. Kings will come from you. That's why I'm making you these promises. Kings will come from you. That's why I gave you circumcision. Kings, you need to be a distinctive nation because kings will come from you. And that king is the seed, and that seed is the key to being the mediator to make all things right, curse to blessing. And this continues to play out, and that's why there's so much attention on two people in Genesis 37 through 50. One of them is Joseph. You all know those, that guy pretty well. Who's the other guy? Judah. Right? Do you know that? Judah gets equal court time press as Joseph. In fact, Judah, I mean, it's not always positive court time press. Like, remember Judah and Tamar and, you know, all that kind of bad stuff happened. Tamar, the name Tamar, even in 2 Samuel, she always gets a bad rap. But uh, she's always a victim. But anyway, Judah is a, Judah is important. Why? Because he's the, neck, he's the line of the king, right? Because that's already been set up as the main concern in Genesis 17. Where is the king going to come from? He's the most important guy. Tell me, where is he going to come from? I know the nation that he's going to come from. This nation that will soon be called Israel. But what tribe? And the tribe is Judah. Obviously, this timeline will need to be extended. So, Judah. Anyone know the prophecy attached with that? Genesis 49, 10. 49, 10. Until Shiloh comes. Someone just read it. Genesis 49. Turn there. Turn there. And just read it. Someone read 49.10 and following for me. Don't just read 10. Read some more. Oh, yeah. But I'll cut you off when, when I need to. Go ahead. Someone read it out loud. Really loud. Really, really, really loud. The scepter will not depart. Okay, stop right there. Scepter. Key word. Scepter. You could also spell it different ways, but that's however you want to spell it, that's good. I don't know how to spell anything. How do you spell it? S-E-P-T-E-R? Oh, I got it right the first time? That's good. And in Hebrew, it's a lot easier to spell it. Shevet, you know. But anyway, uh, but uh, continue. Scepter. Very, 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 very important word. Continue reading. That was great. Great volume. Good. Or the staff Until he whose right is come. Okay, stop right there. Are you reading from ESV? No, 
No, Are, I'm reading from the CSV. Okay. That's one translation of to whom it's right. That's the word Shiloh. Okay. Uh, there's different translations of the word Shiloh. That's one possibility. In fact, it's actually played off on in Ezekiel. But <clears throat> another way to translate it is from Shalah, where you get the word Shalom, which means peace. I prefer that for a variety of reasons. Uh, I don't need to go into all the linguistics of it now. But I do prefer the word peace because, continue reading, and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. He ties his donkey to a vine, and the colt of his donkey to the choice vine. He washes his clothes in wine, and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth are whiter than milk. Stop right there. So, see, we love that first prophecy in Genesis 4 and 10. Oh yeah, Shiloh, he's coming, and he's going to reign, and everyone's going to obey him. And then what happens? He goes and ties his donkey to a what? Fine, and you're just like, who cares? Like, what is up with that? And and then he's going to wash his garments in grape juice, and you're just thinking, or wine. And you're thinking, why would you ever do that? You're like, ooh, let me dump some mulches. You're like, now we're going to make it really sticky. And you're like, why would you do that? And, and his teeth are white with milk. It's like, great, this guy loves to drink milk. Good for him. No, it's because of this. Curse to blessing, yes? Curse to blessing. What happened when the ground was cursed? It's no fruitfulness. Everyone remember that? No fruitfulness. So here is this guy, and he's tying his donkey to a vine. Why? Because the vine... What, okay, would it really make sense to tie your donkey to a vine? Why not? I mean, it's like, you know, this donkey ties to like a little twig thing, and then the donkey runs, and it's like, where did my donkey go? You tied it to a vine? What kind of, what kind of dumb person are you? You know, I mean, there is no word to talk about your foolishness, unless the vine was what? incredibly strong because the fruitfulness of the land had made a vine as strong as a tree. Does that make sense? That would be cursed to blessing, yes? And in a, in a times where we're all familiar with you know milk and you can buy like a bazillion gallons of it at Ralph's and you think, oh, I got plenty of milk. Back then they didn't. And nowadays, here, I'll... Because... I'll, because organic is so big now, you know what I mean? Uh, I, and there's some people at our church that really like it, and I'm not criticizing, but it's hard to buy. You know, it's expensive to buy organic. You know, it's very expensive. It's pricey. And uh, like non-pasteurized organic milk, milk from grass-fed cattle or whatever, it's like $9 a pint or something ridiculous like that. That's not plentiful. But in that day, it will be. It'll be so, there'll be so much milk, you could drink it to stain your teeth what? White. That's the point. See? Curse to blessing. And there are two reasons that you wouldn't wash your clothes in wine. The first reason is obvious, because that would not help you whatsoever. The second reason is intuitively obvious as well, because that would just be a waste of what? Wine! Like, why would you do that? Unless wine was so plentiful that it didn't matter. 
wine is as plentiful as what? Water. Right? Curse to blessing. If you just have wine everywhere, well, why not wash your clothes in wine and then water? I mean, it doesn't make a difference. That's the point. Do you see this? Oh, by the way, this one's just for free because it actually zooms in way, way later. <clears throat> Zechariah 9.9 and later used in Matthew, say, 21, and, and actually every uh, gospel passage, essentially. Behold, a king comes riding on donkey. Where did they get that image from? You know? Here. That's why you have to read verse 11. Because the king is riding to claim the throne on a what? Donkey. So he rides in the city, and that's why he ties his donkey to the to the hitching post, which is actually a humongous vine because everything has been turned from curse to blessing. Do you see what's going on? Except, one kind of complication, is there any note of humility here? Or, uh, not humility, afflictedness here with this king? No. But in Zechariah 9.9, he's riding on the donkey what? Humble or afflicted. Zechariah adds that in because the king when he rides in the first time, will be what? Killed. See that? See that? See, there's a lot of things going on here. And we haven't even gotten to 2 Samuel yet. But see, you have to know Genesis to get to 2 Samuel, to get to Zechariah, to get to Malachi, to get to the New Testament. And uh, we're just in the Genesis stage. Scepter. Good. Finally, we're done with Genesis. I mean, not that that's a good thing, but you get the picture. Exodus. <clears throat> What you learn here is, once again, God reasserts himself as king because it's God versus Pharaoh. Pharaoh is a what? King over Egypt. So God versus Pharaoh reestablishes him or reasserts him as king. First structure they build after they get out of Egypt and settle at Sinai is the... The what? Yeah, the ark along with the whole structure which is known as the... Tabernacle. Good, good, good. I'm not trying to trick you guys. It's not like that comes later. Tabernacle. Tabernacle has a bunch of, you know, you got flowers and you got pomegranates and you got blue things on the ceiling and purple things on the side. Why? Anyone anyone know why? Yeah. Yeah, it's supposed to look like Eden. The tabernacle is supposed to look like Eden. It's supposed to resemble Eden. Who dwells in the tabernacle? It's not a trick question. God. Yes, that's right. God dwells in the tabernacle. Why? Because the tabernacle is a representation that God will restore the world back to what? Eden. But more specifically, God rules in the place where Adam left. Does that make sense? And you start to see and, and what else happens in the tabernacle? What do you do in the tabernacle or the temple later on? You offer sacrifices. Why? Sometimes for worship, other times for what? Sin. It's a place of mediation. It's a place of atonement. Now, do you start to see some metaphors colliding together and merging together? What you have is Job. Give me a mediator. God says, okay. 
I want them divine and human. I want them able to deal with sin, overcome death and everything. And then all of a sudden that zooms us forward to Genesis 3.15 and God says, here's the seed. He's a king. And we're thinking, but does that really make him a mediator in the Job sense? Well, no, not entirely, but we're moving in that direction. And here he is. He's going to come from the line of Judah. He's going to bring blessing from curse. And he's... and to symbolize this or to symbolize the nation's mission around it, we're going to build a what? Tabernacle, which shows that the kingdom is not lost. It is still there. God still has a relationship with his people. And on top of that, God can make atonement. Do you start to see everything merging together? Does this start to make sense? Where the king lives, that's where mediation can occur. And where mediation can occur for sin, you have the transformation of curse back to blessing. Does this make sense to everybody? Do you see where it's going? In Numbers, uh, okay. In Numbers, oh wait, wait, Leviticus. You weren't you. This is reinforced in Leviticus, obviously. Yes. This idea of atonement, cross-reference Leviticus 16. By the way, you should all know where the Day of Atonement occurs. It's in the Sweet 16, Leviticus 16. Remember that. Okay, good. Numbers. As we continue through redemptive history, people are traveling, and now we know. We know what Israel is about. We know the king that is coming. We know the concepts surrounding it. We know the king will reclaim his kingdom through mediation as symbolized by the tabernacle. But we need some more reinforcement of this. And so a guy named Balaam providentially comes along, and he has a donkey that talks. Donkey? Uh, Anyway, the... And... God providentially uses him to predict something. So go to Numbers 24, 17. And someone read it out loud, real nice and loud. Uh, what one word there have you heard before? Scepter. We're in numbers now. 2417. And we have the scepter connection, yes? He's back. And he's not coming yet, but he's coming near. Continue. Continue. Uh, Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing the land of Sorry. It's okay. Continue. And one, uh, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the city. Yes. One from Jacob will exercise what? Dominion. Everyone hear that word dominion? The Hebrew word is radah. If you need it in script, it looks like that. Okay? Remember, why did God make man in his own image? In order that he might rule. The word for rule is radah. 
or in cursive like that. Does this look like this? Yes, because they're the same word. Take my word for it. You can look it up. It's not hard. I can show it to you. And you're saying, oh, but how many rules are... Anyone taking Hebrew this semester? Okay. What's... You, oh, you don't know the... Oh, that's okay. Yeah, it's only like the second week. What am I doing? <laughs> I'm like, tell me the word for, you know... And minor prophets, I can do that. I, can, I know people I can pick on. It's wonderful. So, uh, the word for rule here is not the common word for rule. In fact, used in a kingly context, you only have it in Genesis 1, Numbers 24, 17. Coincidence? I don't think so. What is Balaam envisioning this guy as? The second Adam. The first Adam was supposed to rule. Did he? Not for very long. He gave up his rule. This Adam will do what? Exercise dominion. This is the real king. So now, Numbers 24:17 has officially and clearly connected Genesis 3:15, Genesis 12:22, Genesis 49:10 all together. Does that make sense to everybody? It all merges right here. And what's so beautiful about this is that Balaam, is Balaam from Israel? No, he's not. In fact, if you look at the Deir Allah texts, which are found in Jordan, uh, you'll see Balaam's name pop up because the guy was not an Israelite. And what he did and what he was used for or in providentially was he predicted this one world ruler such that later on, cross-referencing Daniel and then Matthew, who, what gets the wise guy's attention in Matthew? Star. Where'd they get that from? Numbers. And why did they know it was the birth of a king? Numbers. See, it wasn't just like, oh, cool, star. I know that there's a king. How do you know? I don't know. Why not? No, it's because the prophecy. So they come offering gifts to this king because they know he's the true king of Israel. See how that works? It's all building up together, okay? And so this actually goes out to the nations. That will be blessed. There. This makes sense to everybody? You with me? As time moves on, this prophecy has already set, um, has already established a lot of what Israel is about and has almost enacted a little bit of what Israel is about and what they're supposed to exhibit and demonstrate, particularly along the lines of a king. But now they have something a little more specific they need to show, and that is defined in the law. Deuteronomy 17, the law of the king. Law of the king. You will hear me reference this all the time. Kings, um, you know, just remember, just like we have in cell phone technology, 3G, you can't have 3Gs in the law of the king. What are they? You can't multiply gold, gals, and giddy up. In other words... Okay, gold's easy, right? Gals don't have multiple wives. Giddy up, don't multiply horses. Okay? You need to know that. You need to know that so, so well. 
Like I, I wake you up at 1.30 in the morning and you've been drugged and you can still tell it to me. Like, what are the three Gs? Gold, gals, giddy up. And then you go back to sleep. Just no problems. You need to know that because when we get to 2 Samuel, you're gonna, the author of 2 Samuel is going to be like, uh, um, David has a lot of wives. Um, and then he's going to move on. And, and most people are like, oh, that's cool. Let's go. You're like, no, that's not cool. That's not cool at all. You know, hello, ding, 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 problem. You know, and when you get later to Sam, Samuel, I mean, not Samuel, Solomon, it's like, well, Solomon was in the gold trade. You're like, gold trade? Bad. Then Solomon had horse trade, horse trade. And then finally, Solomon had a thousand wives. And then you're like, oh, bad. And then at that point, you realize, <laughs> yes, that is bad. And God says, we're breaking this thing apart. Uh, this is how you have to read the Bible. You, this is the lens that you are supposed to have partly when you read the book of 2 Samuel. If you don't have these things in mind, you won't understand anything that's happening. Uh, let me just give something away early. You think the problems David had with Bathsheba started in 2 Samuel 11? No way. No way. They started in 1 Samuel when David was in the wilderness because he started multiplying women way early. You think the problems that David had with Absalom and all these revolts and his sons dying and everything happened early? Samuel tells you, no, they happened way earlier. You just have to be watchful when suddenly the author Samuel just goes, bing, let me give you an update on David's wives. And you're like, what is up with that? Oh, okay, whatever. You just keep going. No, it's to tell you, he may look good, but he already has his, he already has his Achilles heel and somebody already shot an arrow right into it. He's dead. Dead before he began. Dead on delivery. Okay. Um, that's, that's kind of the hint there. Does this make sense? Law of the king. You need to know the three G's. You need to know them really, really, really well. Okay, so that's Pentateuch. Uh, there's a lot there. It sets up for everything. Like I tell my Old Testament Survey 1 students, if you don't know Old Testament Survey 1, you're lost with the rest of the Bible. It's true. You could be, I mean, ultimately, you could be lost in the Pentateuch, I mean, forever because it's so complicated and so rich. But essentially, if I could boil this all down, what we have is the promise of a king. We have his agenda, and we have his nature, and we have how to evaluate whether the king is good or bad, where the king comes from. We have this big, nice introduction to the king. Everyone with me on this? This is what we have. Now the rest of the Bible is saying, okay, here's the promise. Here's how we think about it. Here's who they come from. Here's what he does. Here's how you evaluate him. Well, let's see how it all pans out in history. Does this make sense to everybody? That's what the rest of the Bible is about. So, so let's see how it pans out. Joshua judges Ruth. Joshua, we have the land established for the kingdom because you can't have a king if he doesn't have a kingdom. So you need to get Israel situated in a land. The book of Judges, one of the most common refrain. Okay, well, first, back up a little bit. The first half of, our first three quarters of Judges, I guess you could say, is about the judges, right? The leaders of Israel, are they good or bad? 
they're all bad. Okay, maybe with one exception. <clears throat> and that's not Gideon. Uh, that's the first guy, Othniel. But they're pretty terrible. And why does the book of Judges show us that they're terrible? Because, okay, well, Joshua, you get the land. Judges is the providential need for a king. Providential need for a king. That's what you need in Judges. You have leaders who are terrible, who rule only a limited amount of area, who can't rule very well. They're only temporary. And there is no longevity or continuity within the kingdom. On top of that, you fill in the blank if you remember. There was no what in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. No king. Right? No king in Israel. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And in the period of Judges, you have chaos, which forces the nation to desire a king. By the way, it wasn't wrong for the nation to want a king. It was intentional. We will talk a little bit more about why there were problems with that, but God was forcing the nation to desire a king. They needed a king. And that king would be provided for in the book of Ruth. Ruth, you know, she's a Moabitess and she's rejected, but she's incorporated into the kingly line. And that's why in this terrible, dark period of time, by the way, the time was so terrible that even ancient Near Eastern texts ask and request for armed escort to go through the land of Israel. So bad. It's like, uh, if we want to go down to Egypt, Pharaoh, you need to send us an armed escort, an armed guard, because this place is crazy. Um, it's dangerous. See, that's why Ibex is perfectly safe. It's not the time of the judges down there anymore, so <laughs> it's ridiculous. Uh, in that dark period of time, Ruth is this beautiful love story. You know, and all the guys are like, ah, like love story. I don't like love stories. Yeah, I know. I'm with you there. But this one's inspired, so it's good. <coughs> and uh, it actually does something positive. Like, it produces one individual we care about, David. You see, that's why this is the most beautiful love story of all. Because in the midst of this incredible, tumultuous time, you have one beautiful moment in the time of the judges. And when all the papers on the press, so to speak, are printing up, oh yeah, and then you got this judge and he's now in corruption and he caused idolatry and then now you have a guy who steals $5 million from his mom and makes an idol and his mom's so happy he makes an idol with it and, and now the tribe of Dan has moved from south to north so everyone changed their maps over accordingly. It's like, what? I mean, can you imagine? It's like Texas went to Alaska, okay, just yesterday. So please keep a note of that. And New York now moved to California and kick California into the ocean. And now all the Californians are swimming to Hawaii. You know? And you're like, that would never happen. It did in the time of the judges. All the time. And you're like, that's crazy. Yeah, that's the time of the judges. You have a beautiful story that ends with the most beautiful ending, which is a genealogy. And you're like, why? Like, that's not exciting. You know, can you imagine? It's like, 
beautiful us, I love you, Bo, you know, I love you, Boaz, I love you, Ruth, you have a baby, and then all of a sudden, not the credits roll, just the genealogy rolls. <laughs> Anticlimactic. No, it's not. Because, starting from here, and this is another tie-in, Genesis 3.15, the woman will give what? Birth to a seed. Does that make sense? She'll give birth. So the entire, uh, if you know the structure of Genesis, it's based off a series of toledot, genealogies. Everyone with, that, with me on this? So you have a series of genealogies trying to explain and point out who the seed will come from. Does this make sense? Which line? So the genealogies go to Judah. And the last genealogy is in chapter 38, and it's a genealogy between Perez and Zerah. And uh, that genealogy, dot, 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 is carried off right here. This finishes the genealogy in Genesis. So now you have all these links that intertwine Ruth back into the main storyline. And Ruth is not just this random love story. Ruth is the accomplishment of refining genealogy after genealogy so that you can get to person after person so that you can figure out who the Messiah is going to come from. Does that make sense to everybody? That's what's going on from Genesis all the way to Ruth. And that brings us now to 1 Samuel. Any questions thus far? Oh, this is for free. And you probably already heard me say this before, so I apologize for the redundancy. But <clears throat> Matthew begins with what? Genealogy. Why? Because it's the final genealogy from what? Genesis all the way to Jesus. Matthew finishes off what Moses started. Does that make sense, everybody? Matthew finishes off what Moses started. Okay. First Samuel. You know what? It would be suicide to start First Samuel and then stop. So I'm going to let you out early, and then we're just going to continue next time. Is there?